The Force is with you, young Skywalker. But you are not a Jedi yet. Good afternoon. This is Keith with the Medvet Brothers and we are here at the Camera Social Studios. Yes, yeah, so today we have a good friend of mine, Dr. Nathania Baez Hernandez. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me in your program today. It's really a big pleasure for me to be here. Oh, well, it's our pleasure as well, and I'm pretty sure that our listeners are going to be given a lot of insightful, useful information. Um, introduce yourself. So yeah. if you could, yeah, just introduce yourself to the audience. Let us know. Um, what is it exactly that you do and how did you get into it? Yes, so I am a pediatric cardiologist, which means that I take care of children with heart conditions. Either these heart conditions are because they have been born with some cardiac defect or they have acquired cardiac defects. However, within the pediatric cardiology, um, I sub-specialized in pediatric cardiac transplantation. This is a field where uh, children, when they need further treatment that cannot be fixed with a surgery, um, we call it end-stage heart failure. They need treatment yeah. mm -hmm. that uh, cannot be corrected for surgery or medications, so they are referred to us for transplant evaluation. So are you, are you, would you say you're like the last result for these children and, or, or um, is it kind of something that just may have arise during their early stages of life? Yeah, so when you, when a child needs a, a heart transplant, that means that other options has been explored and there is no cure, there is not medicine or surgery that can fix that condition. Therefore, transplant becomes the only option for that child. So when children come to me or to my team, those children um, most likely um, will need a heart transplant. However, within the expectant of heart diseases or um, heart failure, we can provide care to children with medications, and other uh, and devices support. But within this specialty, transplant is one more treatment. Okay. When it comes to, you know, these type of issues, is it something that can be identified during the trimester of a parent, of, of the mother, or is it something that you identify after the child is born? Yes, so right now there, is, uh, there are ways for pregnant uh, women to be identified by ultrasound, let's say the uh, gynecologist or uh, obstetrician, mm -hmm. uh, they found some abnormality in the um, fetus, so they are referred for a fetal echocardiogram. Wow, so this can happen pre-birth. Oh yeah, so there are conditions that are called congenital heart diseases. Okay. Congenital heart diseases are uh, conditions where the children are born with this cardiac abnormality. 
today about one out of a hundred children are born with a congenital heart disease. Mm -hmm. Clearly, the spectrum can vary significantly from a simple defect to a more complex defect. Mm -hmm. So, well, we, via a, a fetal echocardiogram, we can identify children coming with a congenital heart disease, even though uh, sometimes uh, some of these conditions can be missed, but um, the more complex one can be identified. Those children are considered sort of high risk, so they undergo um, an echocardiogram or a ultrasound of the heart mm -hmm. once they are born. So yes, these ca cardiac defects can be identified prenatally with fetal echocardiography. What, what are some of the differences from, let's say, a simple and complex, right? And let's say if I have one of my, uh, my niece, um, I have a niece who is 16 and then I have one who is four, right? Mm -hmm. So would it be the same for like, is there any uh, ways to test or to identify if they are a, um, if they have uh, some type of heart problem or heart issue? Yeah, so the most important thing is uh, a physical examination. Okay. So what happened is, let's say you have a child that you think is, is being healthy all his life or her life, and nothing has been identified, he's growing and developing fine, mm -hmm. let's say. But at some point, a pediatrician or an emergency department doctor uh, finds a heart murmur. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter that it is a four-year-old, a 10-year-old, 15 year old. Yeah. It is what prompts the attention to further investigate. So usually what happens, let's say a heart murmur that is heard in a child, uh, or children with, let's say, failure to drive, mm -hmm. or some respiratory symptoms. Um, those children, for whatever reason, you know, they are referred to a cardiologist because of this finding. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, what I find is, a child present to an emergency department with some vital, what it looks like a vital illness, mm -hmm. and they get a chest x-ray. In the chest x-ray, they find an enlarged heart. So that prompts more testing to be done. Mm -hmm. Or a child who shows with a murmur. Usually that happens to, um, when they go to the pediatrician for a regular checkup, okay. and then they find a murmur. And That's pretty common. Exactly. So then that prompts another testing to be done. And this test most likely will be an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. So then we look into the heart and the anatomy of the heart, and then we find a cardiac defect. Sometimes you can have communication between chambers of the heart mm. in the form of atrial communication, ventricular communication, interventricular you know, communications, or narrowing of the valves of the heart. And sometimes what it happens is that you find hearts that are structurally normal, mm -hmm. but they have what we call cardiomyopathy, are diseases of the heart muscle, and the heart are either enlarged or too thick. Wow. So the spectrum of heart diseases uh, in children varies significantly, and that is one of the um, differences between adults and children. So you have kind of more of the congenital heart diseases when you have a normality of the anatomy of the heart mm -hmm. that
that means sometimes, and you asked me about um, the complexities. Yeah. Clearly, <laughs> the spectrum is significantly wide. <laughs> you can have a child that has a simple congenital heart disease that is, for example, a little hole in the heart, like people call it, mm. or what we call intra um, atrial communication or ASD or interventricular communication. Those things are sort of um, more simple defects and you can they can be fixed either by surgery or even by cardiac uh, interventions. Okay. However, there are others um, that are very complex are heart diseases where you have a univentricular heart. The heart pumps, it's just like a one uh, lower chamber pump that pumps the blood to the lungs and to the systemic or to your whole body. Mm-hmm. Um, there are significant abnormal valvular disease. Um, so those children are more sick mm. and you the presentation is completely different. So most of the children that comes that are born with complex congenital heart diseases are diagnosed earlier uh, in life. Wow. And those children, you know, if they are not identified earlier, they will die if mm. they don't get um, surgical repaired in the early stages what, in their lives. What, what brought you into this field? What, what intrigued you so much about the heart? The passion. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I, um, since I was uh, in medical school, I was always interested in, in the heart. Mm-hmm. And um, I am from the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, and for whatever reason, I always liked the pediatric side of the medicine. And within the pediatric side, I love the heart portion of it. So I wanted to become a pediatric cardiologist. Nice. Um, so in order for me to advance my career and to get the knowledge that I needed, unfortunately, at that point back in my country, I couldn't get um, you know, the training that I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew I wanted to become somebody who can provide the best care possible. So I came to the United States to pursue that career, um, to become a good pediatric cardiologist, because within the pediatric cardiology uh, field, it's not just being able to diagnose these diseases, but also being able to provide the treatment that these patients need. And unfortunately, in developing countries, sometimes we don't have the resources to support those children, and they die. There are significant complex as heart dis- uh, diseases and that need complex, extremely complex surgeries, and we don't have the resources to provide that. We are um, really blessed that in America we have so much uh, technology and uh, science and resources to provide uh, excellent care to this population. Mm-hmm. And for example, Pedi- uh, pediatric uh, cardiac transplantation is something that is not and uh, is not provided uh, in all the countries in in the world. And America, here in the United States, the field of pediatric transplantation ha- is well developed. I knew I wanted to become a pediatric so, cardiologist and transplant, so this is the place that I wanted to be. Knowing that you know it personally, it, it's just really just your own passion and um, willingness to want to do good for others is how you got into the field, yes. is that correct? Essentially, yes. I have a cousin, she has a, um, con- she was born with a congenital heart disease, mm-hmm. like a ventricular septa defect. Uh, she's an adult now. But uh, my inspiration was always to provide care 
to this vulnerable situ uh, population. You need That's to right. have the dedication, the passion, the time, because these children are pretty sick mm -hmm. and families are very overwhelmed. You have to have the knowledge, the passion to do it right. So that was, you know, one of the things that um, inspired me I the most. It. Are there any um, nonprofits or anything that you can do, you know, um, back in the Dominican Republic where you can go back there and kind of help treat, you know, pediatric patients? Absolutely. Uh, and those are the things that um, I have done in the past, mm -hmm. but I'm looking forward to become more involved. We, uh, from time to time, there are medical missions that um, we can participate uh, not just me, but a lot of volunteers from America and, and other developed countries. Mm -hmm. We provide care for the pediatric population, uh, specifically cardiac kids. Mm -hmm. Team of doctors, uh, cardiac surgeons, cardiologists. Mm -hmm. We go and we provide uh, cardiac surgeries mm -hmm. to these children. It's a volunteer job. It's beautiful, uh, sometimes frustrating, mm -hmm. because um, <laughs> there are kids that unfortunately are so complex and they are uh, so advanced into their diseases that they are kind of late mm -hmm. for surgery. Mm -hmm. I wish I can do better for my, more for my country, mm -hmm. but um, I guess it will take time. Mm -hmm. um, we continue to collaborate with other uh, providers to see how can we advance um, the care developing countries so what is um i want to make sure i have a better understanding of a heart transplant is it from a deceased person someone that passed away you guys are getting the heart from that person or are they keeping it on ice or what actually are you guys doing with the other heart transplant yes i want to take some time here to explain um a little bit about what the transplant process okay. is about mm -hmm. because i think it's a I'm very passionate about cardiac transplantation, and I would like to provide some more information to the general population Please about do. it. Do. So number one, cardiac transplant um, is offered to children with any stage heart disease, like I mentioned before. Heart failure can be secondary to congenital heart diseases or acquired heart diseases. Congenital heart diseases are those patients are born with cardiac defects. Nowadays, we can provide surgeries for most of those children, but there are children that might not qualify. Mm -hmm. Or there are children that have undergone cardiac surgery, but over time, the heart starts failing. There are other children that are born normally, the heart is fine, and at some point, they develop what we call cardiomyopathies. Mm -hmm. And there are different types of cardiomyopathies. The most common is what we call dilated cardiomyopathy, where the heart over time is start getting dilated and dysfunctional. So it doesn't pump enough blood. So the end point that this patient have, both of them, the one that are born with congenital heart diseases and they have heart failure because of that, or those that have cardiomyopathies, I mean, this is so the heart, is heart failure, meaning that the heart doesn't pump enough blood or doesn't provide enough blood to the body to sustain or to um, supply the metabolic demands that your body has mm -hmm. for functions that are vital mm -hmm. in for the children to continue to grow and development. So then those children don't have any more options 
We try to fix them with medications and do everything that we can before we go into transplant. But when those children don't have any other option, they fail medical treatment or they fail surgical treatment, so then transplant become an option. Mm-hmm. Now, it's important to know that transplant is not a cure because unfortunately transplant don't last forever. And there are, you know, no transplant lasts forever. No transplant lasts forever. Mm-hmm. Not even other, you know, kidneys or liver. Those other organs at some point we failed. So trans- heart transplant don't last forever. So what happens is when we identify a child that uh, we need a transplant, the family and the child gets evaluated to see that it's a candidate. Why? Because transplants are, you know, donations. We need donations for a patient to undergo heart transplantations. And those are, you know, great. Those are, I cannot even, you know, describe the heart that the families have in order to, you know, you, ha- you lose your child or your loved one. And then going through that pain, somebody comes and approaches you to ask you, do you want to donate, you know, the, don- the heart of your child who has just died? And those families have the, you know, the heart to say and the love to, for other children that they don't even know to say, yes, I would like to donate them, you know, the organs of my heart, mm-hmm. of my child. So then, yes, we need donations. So what happened for heart transplantation is a follow transplant. There are children waiting for heart transplants. We don't go and buy hearts. Mm-hmm. You have to wait for somebody, a child, specifically heart transplantation, to die and the family to donate in order for your child to have a chance of continue to living her life or his life. Wow. So that's why, there, for example, there are 100 children waiting for one heart to become available. So that is why when, we come, when it comes to transplant, it becomes a very delicate treatment, a very special treatment, because somebody has to die for your child to survive. So once we evaluate the, uh, the children, the children are placed and then we decide, for example, that is, it is a complex evaluation that involves the medical team, social worker, uh, surgical team, uh, psychology, infectious disease, nutritionist, it's a very multidisciplinary team that gets involved in the evaluation of a heart transplantation. And they all have to sign off in order for them to qualify, correct? Oh, yes, also people well prepared and in their line of job. So once with the evaluation is completed, usually it takes you know, a week to evaluate a child, depending on the urgency that child needs to eva- be evaluated, three to seven days. Then the so team meets, from the time that they are identified as a um, surgical candidate, it takes... As a potential transplant candidate. Uh, okay, a transplant candidate, it takes one to three weeks just for them to... No, three days to seven days. Okay, just to qualify. Yes. Okay, okay. okay. To, to evaluate. Evaluation means assessment of the whole body of the child. Mm-hmm. So we evaluate how the kidneys are doing, how the liver is doing, how the lungs are doing how the brain is doing, mm-hmm. how is the nutritional status of the child. So all these things take place on the evaluation for a child undergoing heart transplantation. Mm-hmm. So then once we evaluate all this organ system and also the family as whole, because we need to make sure that this family is gonna be able to provide the care that this child needs, because you don't want a child to get a transplant and then the child dies 
because let's say the family didn't take a good care of that child. And then that organ went to waste essentially. Yeah, and somebody else missed the opportunity of living. So that is why mm -hmm. social evaluation is also paramount in the transplant evaluation process. We need to make sure that the family is capable, that we provide the care that this child needs mm -hmm. following transplant. So it's a pretty thorough, thorough um, evaluation on the family. It is, and that is why it takes a long time, not just something that happened from one day to another. Yeah. We take the time, because transplant is a treatment, but it's not an acute treatment, mm -hmm. you know, it's a process. The thing is, once we, let's say, once we evaluate the child, the whole team meets, and we discuss then the candidacy. And once we say, okay, the child is a candidate, because not everybody's a candidate, unfortunately. And then you have to, once you have the candidates, you have to decide who gets what. And then once we decide the child is a candidate, then the child is placed in what we call the wait list. So there is an organization that is called the United Network for Organ Sharing, UNOS. Mm -hmm. That is, in the United States, that organization is the one that kind of administers all the donations in organ donations in the United States. So when a child is deemed to be a heart transplant candidate, we, are, we place the children of that child in what we call the wait list. Mm -hmm. And depending on the urgency of how sick the child is, they are placed in a different category. So the sickest children are placed in the top of the list, what we call status 1A, mm -hmm. because all those are the sickest children and they need a heart as soon as possible because mm -hmm. otherwise they will die. Unfortunately, not everybody who gets placed on the wait list makes it to transplant because they need to wait for somebody to, so donate. to donate. And sometimes a heart doesn't come on time for the child to get a transplant. So there's only one wait list, correct? So let's say if Keith goes to you and you know you tell him he's a candidate, but he has to wait maybe six months. Yeah. It doesn't benefit him any much to go to see another doctor to get put on that wait list because they can't, I mean, regardless, he'll still be in that same spot. Is that correct? Or what? is there a chance that if he goes to get a second opinion from another doctor, can they bump him up higher on the wait list if they deem it more serious? The thing is that, for example, in pediatric transplantation, there are not too many programs that perform transplant in America. Okay. And for example, you can be listed at different hospitals mm -hmm. because every hospital in, um, have their own list of patients. Okay. But also what is important to understand that there are transplants are also subdivided by regions. So, but the thing is, for example, in the case of heart transplant, you have to be within within four hours of your listing center. So, for example, in the state of Texas here, we have a transplant program in Houston and one here in Dallas. Um, so there is no way that you can be listed at these two programs at the same time because you don't have uh, the chance of, let's say if you are here home in Dallas and they, they get an offer for you, it's, a, it's so much time for you to be transported mm -hmm. to Houston and all these things. But there are places that you can be listed depending on the distance. But in pediatric transplantation, specifically heart transplantation, becomes a little bit more challenging because there, no, there are not too many programs close to each other. I know you said uh, something about the hearts. Are there such thing as artificial hearts? Are they making artificial hearts now? Yes, so excellent question. So artificial hearts are what we call little um, there are pumps that in pediatric, um, we utilize those pumps to in order to sustain, uh, to support the heart, either 
to see whether this heart is going to recover or as a bridge to transplant. In children, significant proportion of the children who undergo what we call artificial hearts or ventricular assist devices support are usually as a bridge to transplantation. Now, there are children that they present very sick with conditions sort of inflammation of the heart or what we call myocarditis or some diseases that they can recover. Um, you can support those children with these hearts or these artificial pumps mm-hmm. and see whether the heart is going to recover. Okay. Now, it is important to understand what is causing the heart disease on that child because depending on the etiology, the cause of the heart dis- dysfunction, mm-hmm. you can predict whether this child will recover or not. So um, the field or the development of ventricular assist devices support, or what you call artificial hearts, mm-hmm. uh, have advanced the field of heart transplantation in both adults and pediatrics. Okay. And clearly, pediatric patients, because of the size, they have more challenging um, being supported with these devices. Um, because as you can imagine, you have to be big enough sometimes to, to um, being able to qualify for a specific pumps that adults will qualify than children. But um, we've been very successful at supporting children as little as 2.5 kilograms wow. with these little artificial hearts. And there are different um, type of pumps that we utilize uh, for children, clearly in these babies that are so small, we utilize what we call extracorporeal pumps. It is that we just put cannulas into the heart, but the pumps are outside of the body. There are others that they are teenagers, for example, they are bigger, so they can have little pumps that they, they can be kind of implanted inside of the chest cavity in the heart. So you don't you would not even notice that patient have anything because they're kind of inside. So that is, um, that has been one of the major advances in um, the heart failure field. So can you explain what heart murmurs are? Yeah, so heart murmurs are just sounds Mm. in the heart. You listen to a heart, uh, you examine a patient performing a cardiac examination, you can hear that sound. Mm. Not all heart murmurs are indicating of that something is wrong with your heart. Okay. Okay? Because sometimes you have innocent heart murmurs Mm -hmm. that is just as blood flows inside of your heart, they can produce some sounds. And you you listen to these patients. Uh, We as a cardiologist, we can distinguish by examination, oh, this is an innocent murmur, because there are other things that are taken into consideration. How is this patient doing? Is this patient growing fine? Uh, the quality of the murmur, the intensity of the murmur, mm. some indicative that this is an innocent heart murmur. Now, there are murmurs that are more pathologic and that are indicative that something is not right in your heart. For example, when you have intracardiac communications or stenosis of valves inside of your heart, then as blood flow goes through the heart, you can imagine that we produce some sound because the blood flow goes through areas of the heart that are narrow or as blood chunks from one cavity to another cavity when there is intra-cavitary communication, then they produce some sounds. So um, murmurs are, uh, like I said, sounds and they prompt more evaluation. Mm -hmm. Um, It is nice when we get these patients to our clinic and we examine them um, we get an echocardiogram, 
they just say just to make sure that there's nothing wrong with mm-hmm. the heart, and it ju- those are innocent murmurs. The families are very happy <laughs> when mm-hmm. that is the case. In the other hand, when you have a heart murmur and it is a pathologic murmur, it sounds differently, they are more loud, and you examine the patient, or you do an echocardiogram on the patient, and then you find a, a heart disease. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is that a lot of, of these heart diseases, they can get, they can be a cure. Mm-hmm. With surgery, like I mentioned before, or via cardiac intervention. That's good to know because I didn't know the heart murmur was mainly a sound. I was thinking it was, you know, the heart skipping a beat. So that's not what it is at all. Those are two different stuff. Got it. Yeah, okay. heart is skipping heartbeats is different than a heart murmur. Like when okay. you're in love and your heart skips a beat, I don't think that's the same thing. It's only, yeah. happened, <laughs> it's only happened once. Yeah. It's only, it's only happened, my heart only skipped a beat once. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, your heart broken and it doesn't feel like it's beating, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want I want to I want to I want to transition to the communication aspect of it because I'm really big on communication and then the fact that you're dealing with children that that's like such a different field right Co- to compare it to all the physicians we speak to because they're all dealing with adults. So in your line of work, what what's most important? Making sure that the actual child, or what's easier, making sure that the actual child has an understanding of what's going on if, if they're able to communicate. So let's say uh, we'll we'll go from five. And up so from 5 to 17 okay um, or is it more important that the parents have the best understanding of what's going to happen and let them relay that message to the child How, like mm-hmm. what do you think is the best so um, and that you know in pediatrics general mm-hmm. pediatrics that is the case when you know um, we deal with children mm-hmm. and communication um, is extremely important uh, with the family and the patient. Now, you have to understand that clearly, you know, you have a toddler, they will not understand mm-hmm. what you might, you know, what they have and what you need to do. However, we try to engage the child as much as we can, depending on the level of understanding and the development of that child. For example, for teenagers, we really engage them in the decision-making process, not just in the, the, the parents, clearly the parents, they need to know what's going on. They have to understand. We have to be clear in our communications with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but also engaging the child is very important. But like I say, it depending on the level of maturity and how much uh, this child can understand. So it's kind of like your own self-evaluation of how you feel they'll understand. Yeah, but okay. we try, we try to, you know, to talk to family and um and the child, mm-hmm. like specifically, like I mentioned before, teenagers, you try to talk to them because they have good understanding and they need to know what's going on with with okay. them. And with children, of course, you know, sometimes there are parents that, it's also knowing what the family wants. Mm-hmm. Because for example, there are families that they, they want to rely certain information to the child. Mm-hmm. So I think when you, are evaluating families because you evaluate and remember it's not the patient it's the whole family it's important to understand their goals what they want how much they want to know mm-hmm. how, how much they want to be communicated with their to the ch- children and then we take it from there what kind of um, activity can a child who has a um, heart transplant what, what are they limited as far as what they can and cannot do well following transplant the goal of transplant is to provide a child the opportunity of living 
the best life they can. And once they, let's say that they have a successful heart transplantation, so now they have more energy than they have before because before they were having heart failure. <laughs> uh, they didn't have energy because the heart was not pumping enough, mm. were not working fine. Now they have a new heart. Mm. And they have, believe me, you can see the difference. <laughs> um, so they have a lot of energy. Um, and as long as the heart is working fine um, and following the surgery and they are, you know, the surgical incision heals and, you know, um, they can go back to the community and they live as normal life as any other child. Um, I don't limit them to any exercising, whatever they want to do, as long as they can do it. Mm -hmm. As long as they are well, they can do as much as they can do. Mm -hmm. um, they will limit themselves if they cannot. So the difference with a child with transplant and other children are, yes, the process, number one, they have to survive to a transplant. Then they have to survive the transplant surgery, the recovery and all these things. Then clearly they have to take medication for life and those medications can have side effects. And yes, they have to come and see the doctors very often, very often, specifically during the first three months post-transplant. And then um, the least that they can see us is every three months. So you see, they see us at least four times a year. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, they, they, every time they come into the hospital, they have to get blood drawn for labs to make sure that the heart is working fine. They have to get um, ultrasound of the heart, echocardiograms to make sure that that new heart is working fine, that it's not on you know, rejection, and they take it to, to take their medications. So that makes their life not as normal as other children, but what they can do, as long as they have the energy to do it, mm -hmm. Um, they should live a normal life, essentially. I like that. Specifically like that, if they are uh, doing well. Mm -hmm. So that is the goal of this treatment mm -hmm. option, to m attempt to give them the opportunity to, to live the best life that they can, mm -hmm. that they wouldn't be able to do without transplant. I absolutely 100% love the passion, and, I, and I, I feel it, and it definitely shows in what you do. So I, I know you are definitely doing your best to give these children best lives they possibly can live when they come see you. Yes, we are very, really, we have a lot of passion for this field and I hope we can continue to advance the field because I think there are a lot of things that can be done over time. I hope we can find cures for how to make the heart, the longevity of the new, that new heart to be longer. How can we provide treatment options that are, is not transplant? Because as I mentioned before, it's not a perfect treatment option and you know, developing more treatments and either uh, medically or with uh, surgical therapies, mm -hmm. device therapies, that this patient can live um, a life that is more normal, that doesn't really need to be transplanted. I agree. And then I guess my last thing would be, and I'm not sure if you, do you have any more questions, Keith? No. I don't uh, want to cut you I off. Can't, I can't. Sure. My last one would be if, if with any other parents out there, if you could share any um, tips or information about them as far as like things that they can do to help improve the visits before, during, or after, you know, communication styles they should take, any tips or words of advice that you have with parents who um, may be dealing with a child who has a heart condition? Well, two things that I would like to share with um, the audience um, and the parents specifically um, are, number one, you know your child the best. 
and identifies when something is not wrong, not right with your child, the parents are the one that initially start feeling this is not right. Voice your concerns to your doctor because you know your child the best. When patients come to me, I always listen to the mother's instinct because they know that child the best. And it happens that a lot of times, you know, you have these children that they go to the emergency room or the pediatrician multiple times, oh no, this is nothing. And clearly because heart diseases are not as common as other conditions. So essentially you try to rule out or think that perhaps this is something simple. Oh, it's okay. I don't hear anything wrong with your child. And then after multiple visits, oh, your, heart, your child has a heart condition. And the parents get very upset because it's like, a, I've been coming to the doctor for so many weeks and I've been telling them that something was not right. So voice your concerns to your doctor. Don't be afraid. As a parent, you are the strongest advocate that your child has. Second, I want to just, there are signs that might indicate that your child might have uh, something wrong with their heart. For example, a child who has a problem growing, problem feeding, because in children, one of the main signs is feeding difficulties that might indicate that something is not right with the heart. Because for children, one of the major exercises are feeding. So the heart has to work harder while while they are feeding. So if your child has difficulty feeding, that will be a sign that you have to take into consideration and voice to your pediatrician. If your child has kind of difficulty breathing or breathing faster or kind of having sweating while they feed or sweating easily, those are things that you need to take into consideration. Is your child having a lot of vomiting, abdominal pain that is no normal, out of proportion, those are signs that may indicate that your child has problem with his heart. I, I like what you said earlier as far as, you know, the mothers really knowing their children and being advocates, you know, as far as speaking up. That's one of the things we really, you know, preach about here is when you're seeing your doctor, if you have concerns, speak up, say something. Because, you know, before I got into healthcare, you know, even when I was in the military, I would go to the doctor and I wouldn't really voice my concern. I would kind of just go with it. But now, one of the things we really try to talk about is just really when you're with your doctor, speak up and say things, voice your concerns. So that's good to know. Patients should not be afraid to speak up their concerns. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't agree, it's okay. Um, But it's important to voice their concerns. We as a physicians, we are in this field because we love what we do. We want to help. And part of helping families is listening to them. And we are, we are, to me, when I look at my, what I do for a living uh, in my profession, I am a, I'm serving them. And patients come to me, nobody wants to come to the doctor. And specifically, when you come to a heart doctor, it's just scary. Parents are concerned, children are nervous, specifically the adolescents. So you want to find somebody who's sympathize with you, who has compassion. And doctors are here. We are there for to serve our patients. And I will you know, encourage families to not to be afraid of the doctors. They should not be afraid. 
we are here to serve you. Mm. And this is our job, that's our main responsibility, to serve our patients, to take care of them the best way possible, to support families. I like that. I love it, and I'm all for it. And I just want to thank you again for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. All the MedVet listeners, I hope you gained some very, very useful information, especially if you or a family member is experiencing this. But yeah, so I just want to thank everybody for listening to this segment. I hope you learned a lot. We are here with, again with Dr. Nathania Baez Hernandez. And, you know, tune in next time. Make sure if you like what you heard, you subscribe, and we will reach out again and hear from us next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.